This is Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth. The church has a responsibility to expend a lot of effort in vetting potential pastors. The assembly spent more time on this than anything else they did, by far. We're delighted again to welcome Dr. Chad Van Dixorn to speak with us today. He's spoken with us before about uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith. He's spoken about the Westminster Assembly and preaching. And today he's going to speak with us about the Westminster Assembly and the preacher, the examination of the preacher, the ordination of the preacher. He's written a book entitled God's Ambassadors, the Westminster Assembly and the Reformation of the English Pulpit, 1643 to 1653. Chad, thanks for joining us. Well, it's a pleasure. Thank you so much. The Westminster Assembly took an active role in the examination of ministers. How did that come about? Why did they do that? So in many ways, a long-held Puritan dream or ambition was to try and reform not just the structures of the Church of England, but its personnel. And when the Westminster Assembly was called, Ministers quickly realized in the assembly and out of the assembly that here was an opportunity to create a kind of filter for the national church, a a way of straining out the gnats that survived. So early on, the assembly petitioned parliament to address the problem of the shortage of preachers. The the parliament that called the Westminster Assembly was, was keenly aware of the problem, the civil war that was going on displaced a lot of preachers and uh, there were areas where uh, so so where royalist inclined preachers had fled leaving empty pulpits they suddenly needed chaplains for the navy and for the army they had kicked the parliament had kicked out a whole bunch of pretty awful preachers and some less awful preachers who just weren't sympathetic to their political cause very complicated uh, so so there's a shortage of preachers and the Westminster assembly offered to interview, to examine anybody entering uh, one of these empty pulpits or anyone being called to serve as a chaplain. And then just kind of kept going. Anyone who wanted to move from one church to a different church had to be examined by the Westminster Assembly. And so what, uh, yeah, and so oh, on. I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt. I, I, no, no, I, no, I was just good. curious when you, when you, so what does that examination look like? They're examining all these people. They have kind of an increasing opportunity to do this. What yeah. do those examinations look like? Well, well, before someone could even get examined, they'd have to show up with some testimonials from, from other ministers explaining, you know, what their character was like, what kind of education they had how many years they spent getting that education, which is kind of an interesting additional question. They didn't want someone to uh, have got their degree so quickly that they might not actually have learned very much in the process. They cared who those testimonials were were, were from. The assembly wanted them to be from, from known godly ministers, known because someone could fake a testimonial from a minister who didn't exist, and godly because... Uh, if the minister writing your recommendation is himself sort of suspect or completely unknown to the, the world of godly, the network of godly preachers, then the assembly would have questions. And then for the examination themselves, there were multiple layers. If, they, if the person, eventually a candidate for the ministry or an existing minister, 
had good enough testimonials and kind of could could pass the basic requirements, then they would have to preach a sermon uh, before the whole Westminster Assembly. Not not at all intimidating. Um, so the the assembly would opt, I think they'd start with a, a prayer meeting around six a.m. and preaching around seven a.m. That was uh, informal. They didn't have to attend that. Then at eight a.m. there's the preaching of a probationer or of a or a minister or a candidate for the ministry, and the assembly would assign a text. And uh, occasionally we have some surviving comments on what they actually thought of the sermons. Um, lots of fun there. And then um, if they pass that, then they would go to a committee of the assembly, which the membership of that changed from week to week often. And there they would be asked to, uh, uh, to translate, you know, the usual, translate a passage of Hebrew and Greek into Latin. They would be asked to give a, a Latin defense of a given doctrine. They'd be questioned in church history and, and in theology. And interestingly, they'd be questioned in all sort of difficult places of scripture, a wide sampling of that. And so the issues of the day, whatever the theological hot button debates were, they'd be questioned all those things too. They'd be asked what kind of books they read. I mean, it was a very thorough multi-day exam. Do we have a sense of what the success rate was for these candidates? Yeah, so, so this is what's interesting. The, the success rate is pretty high, and I ought to be able to quantify that, actually, um, having spent this much time working on the subject. But I haven't done that kind of metadata. But, but they examined – they did about 5,000 examinations maybe of about at least 4,000 ministers. The data is rough around the edges due to lost manuscripts and gaps and unknown people and so on. But really incredible, incredible effort. I mean, m- more people changed places during the Westminster Assembly's tenure. There's a sort of a greater upset in terms of clergy in England than at the Reformation or the Restoration of Charles II. It's probably the greatest upheaval in English church history. That is a really remarkable uh, note. Wow. Um, Now, do we have a sense? I know this is difficult to gauge because we're talking about spiritual matters here, but in a sense, did it work? I mean, did testimonies of that day reflect the fact that the preaching, the level of preaching was better than it had been? The level of pastoral care and oversight was was better than it had been? I mean, do we have a sense of whether or not this made a difference? Yeah, so it's interesting. The assembly, so there's uh, two parts to the answer because there's two main areas where the assembly was examining people. They examined all fellows for university posts as well, for college posts in Cambridge and Oxford. There, I think the consensus is that the men who, who were replaced might have been marginally less learned than the people they were replacing but very diligent and definitely more godly. So as mentors, they might have been better. As tutors, you know, the, the jury's still out. So that's, that's college placements. In terms of the church, I think many chroniclers of that day would have considered what was going on to be, to be something of a revival. They wouldn't have used those later words or terms, but there are lots of testimonies of people just saying that, you know, this is the best time spiritually. I mean, it's, there's a war going on. It's awful in that sense. But, but the best times uh, of their lives, the 1640s, you know, the preaching, improving, 
the quantity of preaching dramatically increasing. So, yeah, there, there's, there seems to be a lot of evidence that things go up a notch. But, you know, this, it's not a black hat, white hat situation. There's some very godly, useful Episcopalian preachers who are removed from their posts. And there's some, there's some godly incompetent and competent, but only marginally more godly people replacing them in, in some instances. So there's a lot of, a lot of gray areas to my answer. Now, when we when we fast forward to today, though, what, what do you think are the lessons learned from the the mm. approach they took to ministerial training and to examination of candidates for the ministry, the priorities they had for those things? What what are the lessons we can learn from that for today's church? Well, um, yeah, great question, big question. It seems to me there's at least three things that we can learn. First, the church has a responsibility to expend a lot of effort in vetting potential pastors. I mean, the, the assembly spent more time on this than anything else they did, by far. More man hours, if you will. I think that's a, I think that's a fair estimate. So, you know what? Of, of, it, it's the untold story of the Westminster Assembly that they, they, they invested so much time and energy in uh, not just defining the pastoral office, but, but in, but in uh, examining them. Second, the assembly set the bar pretty high, but, but knew when to offer a little bit of wiggle room. So you've, you, there's these moments when someone, will, someone from the committee will walk into the floor of the assembly and say, we've got a problem. We've got a guy who forgot his Latin. I mean, he can still read Latin, but he can't speak it well anymore. Um, it's a mini crisis. Uh, and guys at the assembly say, well, I mean, come on, let's be honest. A couple of us don't speak Latin very well either anymore. And they say, look, we'll, we'll give the guy a pass because he can still read Latin. And he needs to be able to read Latin because all of our learning is in Latin. And it's an interesting comment. What I find interesting about this episode is two things. First of all, they realize there's exceptions. You know, if someone's not going to a university town, he's going to some rural parish, he might not need the exact same set of qualifications as someone, you know, preaching in an important place in, in London or something like that. The other thing that's interesting, and I think has some relevance for today, and now this is potentially a hobby horse, so tell me to dismount if you want me to, but... Uh, they recognize that, that people need the skills not only to, to learn, to, to read Greek and Hebrew and be conversant with the issues of their own day, but also to be in touch with the wisdom that the Holy Spirit's given the church in the past. And I, I wonder if the analogy today is, you know, ministers needing to be able to read Old English. You could fairly say that all of our learning is in older English until, you know, World War One. people, people phrase theological writings and sermons in a you know a frequently and deliberately archaic english so some flexibility and yet kind of a minimum standard of conversance with the tradition in which they minister third thing that i think is is interesting is the breadth of knowledge that's assumed amongst those testing the ministers and those being tested this is a time when there's no confessional standard They've chucked the 39 articles, 
and they haven't written a confession or the confession's not yet been approved as the new sort of standard for the Church of England. So they're examining about 5,000 ministers. The guys just can't say, yeah, I agree with the system of doctrine taught in the Westminster Confession of Faith or the 39 Articles. They've got to really go in depth and ask them a lot of questions. I think now that we do have in Presbyterian churches a standard of doctrine, I, I just hope that we will continue to to really dig down deep. What does a guy really know? Can he explain the scriptures? Can he talk about the difficult parts of scripture, or does he just kind of migrate to an easier part when asked a hard question? So that was that was like an oppressively long answer. No, but it's it's helpful because I understand what you're saying. And, and now, is there a sense uh, that one one of the challenges I would think if they since they didn't have a confessional statement that they were working from explicitly is making sure that the examinations themselves were balanced. One of the nice things about having a confessional statement to work through is you can kind of work through each part of it. But, yeah, but is yeah. your sense that they did sort of have a, an implicit confession, an implicit set of doctrines that were guiding the examinations? Yeah, so the assembly writes this little-known document, which I call the Shorter Confession, which says what people of the church need to believe to be members. It's pretty bare bones. Here, they obviously have something much more robust in mind for ministers. And I guess it would be something like the confessional consensus amongst Reformed churches at the time. So that's what they're striving towards for ministers in the church. And, you know, I'm not saying we don't need a confessional standard. I, you know, the, the only modest claim that could be made is if, if you've got a group of people who have examined thousands and thousands of ministers, they should be able to make pretty good judgments without a system of uh, – without a stated system of doctrine. Um, but that's a fairly petite and uninteresting claim. So I'm, I'm certainly not saying that uh, confession has no utility here. I think it has immense utility. And they got a lot of experience examining people. So it would be interesting to look at whether their judgments – get better over time or become more confident over time as, as they do this as the years go by. Chad, last question. In our in our earlier conversation about uh, Westminster and preaching, you emphasized that, and I think took great pains to emphasize over and over again, that they weren't just concerned with the, the preaching or the sermon, but with the preacher, with the, yeah, with the godliness yeah. of the preacher. And it's such yeah, a, an important thing. And of course, that must play a significant role in their examination of these candidates beyond the testimony that they looked for from known yeah. and godly ministers, which you referenced at the beginning. How did they try to get at the godliness of this man standing in front of him. And and then I wonder if you could extend in your answer and say, yeah. what can we learn from that? Yeah, yeah. So uh, a story, two comments, and an observation. The story is that at one point, Parliament thinks the Westminster Assembly is getting too fussy about godliness and says, just examine men with respect to their learning only. And the Assembly basically says, no, we're not going to do that. And they just, everything grinds to a halt until they uh, send over a particularly winsome member of the assembly to talk to parliament who, who makes the case, wins the day, and comes back and they resume examining for godliness and learning. So it's an, it's an interesting moment. I'm sure that they would have done the same thing if, if uh, parliament had said, you know, just godliness, not learning. Uh, they're both I- I- integral elements to the Puritan platform. In terms of you know, what they're looking for, how do we know they – did place a huge amount of emphasis on the testimonial. 
Other than that, you know, it's very difficult to know what they were looking for. They want to know if a guy cares about visiting the sick. Does he, will he visit the poor? Lots of debate about these kinds of things. Does he know how to catechize? Um, there's, so there's some kind of practical theology examination questions. But again, that's more exercise of ministry than character of the ministry. So huge emphasis was actually placed on these testimonials and not on examinations about his godliness. That's one comment. The other comment is that... Uh, the assembly, interestingly, does have some questioning about his conversation, which, mean, which means his life. We don't know what they asked. So huge emphasis on the testimonial, some discussion about his conversation. They never ask about the guy's conversion. They, they never look for a conversion narrative. They just want to know whether the man trusts in Christ and what that looks like in his life. But again, the details are vague on what they examine. But I think that's an interesting interesting point in itself, that they're not looking for a conversion narrative as sort of a prerequisite of usefulness in the ministry, like later and American Puritans would, would tend to do. How does this impact us today, or what can we learn from this today? I think that a study of the directory for worship section on preaching and what it assumes or implies about the preacher is really pretty edifying. And I I think it's chapter seven in my book where I try and reflect on that, draw out some of what they're saying. And I I mean, it was edifying to write. I don't know if it'll be edifying to read, but it it certainly was impactful for me and, and led to some, some useful time of prayer and continued examination of my own life there. So well, I can testify as a reader that it was uh, very helpful to me as well. And so, Chad, thanks for your time today. And then thanks as well for your ongoing work, uh, which has been very uh, illuminating and helpful for me, both in my understanding of the past, but also uh, my understanding of the call to the ministry today. So thanks very much. Well, praise God and thank you. Thank you for listening to Theology on the Go. Our guest today has recently written a book called God's Ambassadors, the Westminster Assembly and the Reformation of the English Pulpit, 1643 to 1653. Just for listening, we'd like to give you the opportunity to win this book. So go to placefortruth.org, click on the Theology on the Go link, and there will be a link there for you to enter and win. Thanks also for continuing to support the work of Theology on the Go and the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. If you're able to make a donation, you can do that at AllianceNet.org or at PlaceForTruth.org. And thanks for listening to Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth. <laughs>